Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today we're going to go, uh, as I, I said on the, the post, we're going to take the B all the way up from Prospect Park all the way to 155th Street and head to the Polo Grounds. Now, uh, her grandfather, Horace Stoneham, was... Uh, frequented up there a lot, but uh, Jamie, however, came into this world uh, in, in the uh, the 60s after the Giants left, and, and Jamie, uh, I, I really want to uh, welcome you to the show. I'm very, very thankful that we were able to get you. Jamie Ruppert, everybody. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much. It is really quite an honor to be part of your show, so let me know what I can tell you about Horace Stoneham. Well, first of all, I know that you are campaigning to get Horace Stone into the Hall of Fame. Do you want to talk a little bit about that to start off the show? Sure, I would be honored to. I There has been quite a lot of legend about, I, I called Horace Stoneham, who's my grandfather, I called him Pop. So there has been quite a lot of legend about Pop that has become conventional wisdom that actually is very quite different from the man who impacted baseball for the 57 years that he was part of the Giants organization. And in looking back in the history of baseball and his legacy today, there's quite a lot of impact that baseball uh, owes to Pop being part of the early days of baseball. <clears throat> so I am working that the, the uh, we've started a campaign. It's not till 2018 is the vote is when he's eligible but really trying to create awareness for his contribution to the uh, westward movement of baseball and the ongoing social inclusion across baseball. So it's quite exciting. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck with it. And uh, certainly if Walter O'Malley uh, is in there, it, it really would, between the Dodgers and the Giants, it took two to tango. I don't think either could have left <laughs> without the other. Uh, and so I really do hope that uh, there's more recognition regarding Pops on uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, over the next few years, absolutely. And uh, let's get let's get right into it in terms of your life. Let's uh, let's talk about um, you know where you were born and, and uh, some of your your time growing up uh, around the baseball fan. Sure. Well, I was, uh, and it's hard to say this as a as a member of the Giants family, but I was born in Los Angeles, which is always quite funny. Uh, we moved to San Francisco when I was four. My father went to work for my grandfather, and I had the distinct pleasure of growing up at Candlestick Park with the uh, San Francisco Giants. And it was a, our family business. My grandfather did not have any other business besides uh, owning the team. So that was all we talked about day in and day out. Our travel consisted of going to other baseball parks. We never went to Europe. We never went on summer vacation <laughs> because summers were when we worked the hardest during the season. So it was quite an extraordinary way to get to grow up amongst legends of the game like Carl Hubble and Tom Sheehan and Hank Sauer all the way up to getting to see Barry Bonds, uh, son of Bobby Bonds, who played for my grandfather, uh, play for the Giants much later in time. So it's been an extraordinary journey. It's, uh, it's, it sounds like it certainly has. You know, it's it's uh, it, It's something that somebody like me, who hasn't grown up, it can't even like wrap my my head around what that must have been like. So, I'll, I'll start with this though. Um, what, what was the first time that you remember, uh, if at all, that you were aware the Giants hadn't always been in San Francisco? Well, it was 
obviously always part of our conversation that that the headline around Pop was that he moved the team from San Francisco to San Francisco from New York. So that was always a leading edge part of who he was and how he was talked about. So it was probably again, I was five or six and the conversations around the dinner table would often talk back to times in New York. Um, my mother was a had a huge crush on Mel Ott, and um, <laughs> so there were lots of conversations. It sounds like it sounds like a lot of ladies of the time did. <laughs> I agree with you. My grandfather actually gave her for her uh, 18th birthday. He gave her a beautiful silver bracelet that has Mel Ott's autograph on it. So that's one of the precious things that we have from from that era in time. It's very very personal. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, sounds like a lovely item. And um, when when it comes to your daily summer activities, uh, that's what I'm. I, I think I'm most curious about is, is what was life like once you were out of school um, for the summer. What was life like for you daily? Uh, what was your daily routine in you know growing up in the 60s and 70s around the ball club? Sure. So we would, uh, at a day game, we would uh, leave for the park at about 9 a.m., and we would go to my grandfather's office. And I think it's very different from what people might think today, that uh, you're out on the field, that you're parking in players' parking, that you're hanging out in the clubhouse. It was a very, very formal uh, office where my grandfather and the family would congregate, we would uh, talk baseball. Members of the executive team would come by, and often uh, that would be, again, Carl Hubble or Tom Sheehan or Charlie Fox would come in and would talk with Pop. We were never allowed on the field or in the clubhouse. That was absolutely the realm of the players and the coaches, and the respect that uh, Pop had for that separation between the field of play and the executive offices was sacrosanct and holy, I will tell you that. He revered the baseball diamond. Um, <clears throat> we had hot dogs and Coke, so I'm I'm still alive and healthy today, so I can testify that hot dogs and Coke don't kill you. Um, I had at least 162 of them a year. And we would then um, go, to the, go to our seats right before the game would start. Uh, Pop had a box um, in the upper mezzanine level that was over between um, home and first base. And at Candlestick, that box was at some point called the luxury box. It was simply a concrete box with metal chairs and uh, orange and black seat cushions. Nothing fancy. There was not any glass partition. So he always had the full brunt of the wind along with the rest of us. So we would watch the game, and then we would go home. Often on weekends, I would go spend the night with my grandparents, and we'd talk about the game. And get up the next day and do it all over again. So that was really our life. That just that sounds like uh what like quite the life. You know, just as somebody who's been obsessed with baseball since the age of 13. Man, would I have loved that uh, as part of my daily life. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, fortunately and unfortunately, I, I chose uh when I I went to baseball camp in uh in the summer of 2000 and after that I just kept acting at my high school. So I think there was uh, there was only there was only two paths I, I could go if I were to go baseball or acting and I went screenwriting. Look at that. But well, there um, you go. There there I go. Uh so so in terms of the old timers that you would talk to, uh who are some of the you know, who are the, some of the names that really jumped out 
where you just couldn't get enough uh, as a child of listening to them tell their stories? Well, I, I think what was really extraordinary was the Sunday afternoons when the Giants were on the road in the summer. Um, my grandfather and many of his friends would gather at our house, and that, again, that would include Carl Hubble, uh, Tom Sheehan, uh, Hank Sauer, Herman Franks. Um, let me just think a minute. That was the basic group, and there would always be a few others that would come by. And literally they would sit from 2 to 6 on Sundays and relive games from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And it was so magical to sit because these guys could recall not just the game, not just the inning, not just the batter, but they could go through the pitch count with you and they'd tell you exactly what they were thinking on every pitch that they threw or every ball that they caught. They relived those games moment by moment in our house. And that's the story of baseball that I grew up with. Right, exactly. And so Carl Hubble, you know, he's he's such a Giants legend. And obviously it wasn't until Pedro Martinez struck out uh, those guys in, in 1999 uh, that that you had seen such a dominating performance in the All Star game, uh, I'm sure you heard about that story a number of times. Well, you know, again, we did. I, I would say it wasn't the famous games you heard more about. It was really situations that they found themselves in other games, in other moments in time that maybe weren't the media moment, but what they were thinking at that time at that pitch was so interesting to get those insights into, wow, he's thinking that runner on second, what would they do, <clears throat> who was going to steal yeah. home. It was just much more about the day-to-day of baseball versus, wow, this was a big moment, and we relived that moment a thousand times. Exactly, exactly. And you do get that with these these, these guys. Uh, Carl Erskine's on the podcast a number of times, and he's he's spectacular. And it's unbelievable. He's sharper when it comes to speaking than me, and he's 88 years old just this past <laughs> December. He's, uh, he's really fantastic, and it's really a great to pick his brain. Um, you, uh, you had some, some moments with, you know, some of the, some of the willies uh, of the Giants. Uh, it, you, you were telling me in the pre-interview of, about some of those, if you could, uh, Go ahead into detail. Sure, sure. So in 1971, when the Giants were playing, uh, were going to go play the Pirates before we lost that series, it was late at night, and we were. Um, I was not supposed to go on the trip. And at the last minute, Lon Simmons, who was the announcer, was having to stay because he had to broadcast the 49er game. And suddenly there was a seat available on the plane, and I looked at my dad because I couldn't believe I was being left behind and everybody else was going, and he said, okay, you can come. So I got to go on the plane, and it turns out on the plane, how the seats were, Lon Simmons sat next to Willie McCovey on the plane. So I was nine years old at the time, and I uh, I sat that entire plane ride. It was an overnight flight next to Willie, and he is the kindest, gentlest, sweetest man and everybody on the plane is partying like crazy. It's a night of celebration. And, and Willie, because he was so tall, it wasn't wasn't comfortable to move around, so there he and I sat. And when we got off the plane that next morning in Pittsburgh, I remember you had to walk down the stairs from the plane onto the tarmac, and there was media there. And 
down comes all the players, down come the executives, and Willie and I were just about the last people off the plane. And I remember standing at the top of the stairs with Willie McCovey holding my hand, and we walked down the stairs. And I remember lots of cameras going off because I'm certain people were wondering, who in the world is this this little girl with Willie McCovey? <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's quite the, the memory of... of you know all those memories of of how people just look bigger as childs and rooms and environments look bigger, and to to look over, and, and you know, I, I, it probably really hit you once you became an adult a little bit more. What you know, how unbelievable uh, and, and and unique what you went through was. You know, absolutely. And I will tell you, at the 2014 World Series parade, the Giants were kind enough to invite uh, our family to be part of the celebration, and. I was sitting in the back row on the stage, and in front of me were the five Hall of Fame players that played for my grandfather, and in front of them was the 2014 team, and in front of them were the people of San Francisco. And I have to tell you, knowing the great legend of the Giants through time, through history, through cities, to see that hand of destiny look and say, look at the legacy of this team in baseball is extraordinary, and to have been a part of that, starting with Pop for 57 years, the idea of a family, the Giants' family, and it does transcend the coasts. There, I was just mm-hmm. speaking with some very ardent Giant fans last week at, with the New York Giants Preservation Society, and we all, I think, came to an understanding that regardless if we are in New York or San Francisco or even in Texas or Arizona. We are all mm-hmm. part of the Giants family, and that's really true for the organization because it was our family and it was our family business. And that DNA of a baseball family, the Giants have kept intact through two ownership groups and Larry Bear so kindly when he was talking about the success of the 2014 Giants, he talked about because they regard each other as family. And that's an authentic piece of history that lives vibrantly today. And we have to give props to Gary Mitz, the uh, uh, the head of the New York Giants Preservation Society. I uh, met you over there, and um, and I'm very happy to uh, to have uh, gotten you on this podcast. Now, Jamie, speaking of the legacy, let's go all the way back to your great grandfather. Uh, you still have a portrait of him hanging in your uh, somewhere in your. Uh, I do. I do. So my great-grandfather, his name was Charles Abraham Stoneham. He was known as C.A. C.A. started from absolutely nothing. He was a self-made man, and in 1919, he bought the New York Giants for a million dollars. And he was part of, if you read about him, he was a bit um, possibly controversial, but he was accused of several things that might not have been appropriate. But he was never convicted of anything other than being the owner of a great baseball team. He is supposedly um, was used as the basis for uh, Dan Cody, who was in The Great Gatsby. That was Jay Gatsby's mentor, was Dan Cody. And legend has it that C.A. was the inspiration for Dan Cody. Hmm. C.A. passed away early uh, he was a young man in 1936, and then my grandfather took over as president of the team in 1936 at 32 years old. 
but he had spent an entire decade before working within the organization. So he sold tickets and he did travel and he booked hotels. So he really understood the organization and baseball from the most deepest, just operational parts of what it takes to make a team run from the general manager position all the way down to, again, selling tickets. Right, exactly. And it is a remarkable time to uh, to think about somebody taking over a ball club at, at age 32. It's obviously not unprecedented, um, but, but it's still, you know, obviously it's good that he had the experience at the time. Absolutely. And I think, again, you look at what baseball has become today, and it's, and it's, it's also where the Giants are extraordinary. The <clears throat> the gentleman who runs the ticket department for the Giants, he actually started there 25 years ago. It's his 25th anniversary. He was mentored by Arthur Schultz, and Arthur Schultz was did tickets for my grandfather. So this wonderful legacy of family and tradition and Giants lore and legend is is a true part of the organization. You go back up to the Polo Grounds area, and it's not that you'd be hard-pressed to find something that that, uh, points to the fact that there used to be a ball club here. Um, But in both places, both Ebbets Field and uh, the Polo Grounds, as far as I'm concerned, they haven't done enough, though they they do have the John T. Brush Stairway that uh, I I forget whether it just got unveiled over the summer or whether they're still (laughs) still, uh, working on it. Um, but at least you have something like that coming coming back to uh, to show the, the residents around there the legacy because you know three three different New York teams played in the polo grounds. Right, right. Well, again, I think you looking back, it's always great twenty twenty vision, right? I think that there was so much heartache yeah. when when the teams left. I think there was so much discord. The beauty of it, if there if there can be a nostalgic point here, is much of the New York Giants legacy does live on in AT&T Park in San Francisco. The uh, recent opening of the Gotham Club is a tribute back to the very beginnings of the team. So as much as their home may not be a landmark or have a plaque, their spirit lives on because of the legend of the Polo Grounds and what happened there. So I do believe the Polo Grounds are alive and well in hearts and minds and at AT&T. Exactly, and my favorite part of Gotham, the uh, the Gotham Club, is this photo of Babe Ruth and uh, John McGraw, and Babe Ruth in a Giants uniform. And what's remarkable to me is that that's just something you would never see happen today. I think it was 1923 exhibition for charity, and he dressed up as a Giant. It's 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 remarkable to me that, and, and that also means that Babe Ruth has been in. Three separate, uh, the, the three main uh, New York teams from the time he has been photographed in every single uniform, and I love that. Right. No, it's extraordinary, and it is again an extraordinary time in baseball history <clears throat> when the, when our nation's game was just beginning, and the camaraderie of the teams, and and I think what's a kind of an an aside to that, but the legend of the colors and. I was with my grandmother in Arizona in the 90s, and we were at the game, and my grandfather had passed away, and I'm I'm sitting with her, and we got in there early, and, and my grandmother was a petite woman, very proper. All of a sudden, she grabs my arm, and she goes, holy mother of God, 
And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what's happened? Has she had a heart attack? What's going on? And I said, what's the matter? And she said, they've changed the Giants' uniform colors. And I said, what do you mean? No, they haven't. She said, and I'm looking around on the field, and I'm thinking, no, they're in orange and black. And, And she points to a woman who's sitting in the next section, and she has on a pink hat with the SF on it. That was, that was, you didn't do that, right? It was always orange and black. Mm-hmm. You would never have a pink hat, yellow hat. It was always had to be orange and black. And I think that that's a good indication of the lines of demarcation of what is old school and new school baseball. Mm-hmm. But uh, clearly well, they've uh, had just, some new it, school. It, talk about your reality changing. And and you you believe you know the Giants are going to be orange and black and actually you know ha- having it in your head like the reality that they somehow decided to change it to full on pink. Right. <laughs> that's, that it's beautiful. It's it's you know a little human intricacy that that is that really is uh, outstanding and does tell the difference between the the, uh, the two eras. And what's what's yes. interesting is that I've seen some of these throwback Giants hats and what. And I've seen actually Carl Hubble's hat in the Hall of Fame is an orange, uh, is a blue and orange interlocking NY. Well, I think it's like orange interlocking NY that's a little hollow with white, which is actually, I think, quite possibly uh, the Mets road uniform, alternate road hat this year. Uh, wow. hat is something along that those kind of lines. But, um, you know, the, the orange... The uh, the orange and black hadn't always been there, but it certainly has left the mark. They certainly went, you know, decided that this is the the way we have to go. Well, absolutely, and and you just have to know somewhere in the baseball gods, it's it's been extraordinary to celebrate at least two World Series parades on Halloween in San Francisco. <laughs> it's just right. You couldn't and, and line up orange and black and Halloween in a World Series parade in your wildest dreams. And and that's a good segue uh, to the last ten minutes of our show. In that Peter McGowan, um, and it just happened to work out like this, but the time that I had Peter McGowan on the show was October 31st, so I, I obviously played up the, the orange and black element and, and what Duke Snyder once said, I believe it was Duke Snyder, but a Dodger once said he hates Halloween because of the Giants. Um, <laughs> and uh, ironically, Jamie, uh, the, this is episode 61. Now, the last episode that we that I did was just on a rooftop in Flatbush a couple days ago, which was number 60. And for our listeners out there, I forgot to mention that 1960 was when Ebbets Field was torn down. Now, 62 is not only when you were born, but when the Giants and the Yankees squared off in the uh, the World Series. So I just found it ironic that this is the number screams Yankees. Right. <laughs> in between, two, like a, do- a Dodger number and a Giants number. Right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Baseball is a is a wonderful idea in game, isn't it? It is, it is, and and the numbers and you know you you talk of, you were talking about the baseball gods. And I'm I'm all about the uh, the, the baseball gods. I always uh, pick apart you know little little details <laughs> that just show there's something more going on. You know that this is this Absolutely. is where I find my religion is baseball. <laughs> this, this is where I find my religion. So so another ironic thing is the fact that uh, you didn't come to New York until you were. Uh, well into your adult life. Right. I uh, I did not come to New York uh, until I was in my early 30s, and I was actually, it was my first night in New York, and I was in Midtown, and I was at Rosie O'Grady's because I didn't really know anywhere else to go, trying to get a sense of the city. And <clears throat> and I look up and across in the restaurant, I see some 
some photos hanging on the wall, and and I think, wow, that looks kind of familiar. So when I was done with dinner, I walk over to the wall, and I'm shocked because the first restaurant I dine in in New York, there are pictures of my grandfather on the wall. And I am doing one of those, if you saw someone standing gasping at something, you go, oh, what's the matter? So the restaurant manager comes over, <laughs> and he goes, is there a problem? And I said, oh, no, absolutely not. I said, these are actually, these are pictures of my grandfather. And he goes, are you a Stoneham? And I said, I am. And he goes, don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) He is not at all liked in this city, so don't admit you're a Stoneham. And I actually took that to heart for quite a while. Um, But I think it is now I'm more than ever proud of a man who – who led this great social change in America through baseball. And I'm so proud to be a Stoneham, and I'm even prouder that we're all giants. Well, you know, in Stoneham's case, I think the, the especially Stoneham's case, I think the, the environment was right for it, um, especially with the Dodgers, you know, close to moving uh, moving away. And, and you know, with, with your grandfather, um, he was in a bit of a financial pickle when it came to the team because the, the attendance had been completely uh, through the uh, through the, um, uh, right. the floor, excuse me. And with Walter O'Malley, it was the most profitable team in the majors. Well, and I think here's the other thing to look at. Pop is often talked about is he joined Walter. Well, you're right. They're, they did that together. That was not independent of each other. But if you go back to 1947, he also moved spring training from Florida to Arizona and founded the Cactus League with Bill Veck, where there are now 15 Mm. teams residing. I'm happy to say the Dodgers finally left, you know, 50 years later in 2008 to join us in Arizona for spring training. Um, He was always pushing the envelope on the westward movement. He wasn't the happenstance. He's the consistent person that pushed baseball west through spring training, through moving to San Francisco. He's also the consistent person who helped to integrate the game, whether with African Americans. He opened up the Latin uh, baseball markets through all the scouting. He was the, signed the first Japanese player. He also, what nobody realizes, he also had the first office of executives from all sorts of backgrounds, and that was because the players were from now all sorts of backgrounds. He had the first bilingual scouts so that the players could have a better experience when they came to the to America to play baseball in America. Those are the things that are meaningful in the legacy of what he did to support this wonderful, wonderful game of baseball that we all love. So 28% of the players today, according to Sabre, are from Latin America, he did that, and I think these are the points that have not been given a fair airing in in the baseball, um, again, in the convenient talking point about my grandfather rather than the factual basis of his contribution and legacy to the game. Yeah, and I believe the Hall of Fame has gotten a lot of things wrong over the years, and hopefully they can correct this one. But Jamie, it's been a fantastic show, and you are certainly welcome back anytime you'd like. Well, Sam, thank you so much, and I so love what you're doing, and, you know, out in L.A. where I am now these days, I'm back and forth between San Francisco and L.A., let's let's go get this made. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and I appreciate your ambition uh, to go along with mine. Thank you very yeah, much, Sam. let's go Sam. get it done. Thanks so much, Sam. Absolutely. Thank you very much, all you listeners out there, and we will catch you the next time. Uh,
Go see a baseball game next week. <laughs> Take care.